0: I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We are finishing our journey in Ephesians today, which brings us to Ephesians chapter six, verses ten to twenty-four. Uh, I have to tell you, I mean, I'm I'm young, I'm thirty, but. One of the saddest things in life for me right now is watching like the actors and athletes that I grew up watching like grow old and retire or, or even pass away. Like this year we lost both Kobe Bryant and Chadwick Bossman who played Black Panther. And so like right now it's just like kind of really sad to watch some of these things happen. Um, but, but one person I still would not want to mess with even though that they're much older now is Sylvester Stallone. Right? You don't mess with a guy who was once Rambo. Uh, and I didn't really grow up watching the Rocky movies, but I watched a couple of them. And, uh, and one of the things that stuck out to me about, uh, the, those movies was what Rocky learned about boxing, right? So, one, what he learned through, uh, he, uh, as a process through the movies and so rocky's goal in boxing became a goal not to hit the hardest but to last the longest uh and the latest rocky installment called rocky balboa rocky is arguing with his son and his son is complaining to him about how he's had all these troubles in life partly due because he has to live in rocky's shadow right i have your name attached to mine and so i can't do these things i live in your shadow and and so uh Rocky just says back, you know, in his, in his tone, you know, like this. He says, it's, it's, I want to quote it that way, but I won't. It's not about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. I've heard that, I've heard it said that the Christian life isn't a 5K. Right, so the goal isn't it to go as fast as you can and burn out, know that the Christian life is more like a marathon. More like a marathon. The goal is to endure to the end. In fact, uh, I've, I've read in places that marathon runners, uh, they refer to this point in running called hitting the wall. So somewhere... And this 26 mile run, between the 20th and 23rd mile, your body just starts to fall apart, it feels like. So your knees start hurting, hurting, like your calves start tightening up, your lungs start burning. Uh, and the reasons to quit, they just keep building up. But, but the way that you run a marathon is not by hoping that these things won't happen, right? They they do. They will happen. So, so you don't finish your marathon by hoping it doesn't happen to you. You finish your marathon by preparing for it. You prepare for hitting the wall. You train for it. In, in this passage today, Paul warns every believer of an intense, soul-devouring struggle that happened in all, at all times, in all places. The forces of Satan and hell release a constant, hard-hitting onslaught against believers. He will do whatever it takes to turn believers aside from the cause of Christ. And no believer is exempt. Every believer that we've been looking at in Ephesians, so husbands, wives, mom, dads, children, slaves, masters, every believer is a part of this grand, epic, spiritual struggle and the way to fight it is is not to think oh i hope that won't happen i hope i won't be faced with this intense spiritual struggle or 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 to think that oh yeah that that won't happen to me that's not how we fight it how we fight how we struggle is to prepare for it it's to train for it and the point is not to Hit as hard as we can. The point is to endure. It's to outlast. And thankfully, God gives us all the resources we need in Christ to outlast. He gives us all the resources we need to stand firm. And so in this passage, Paul lays out three elements of our struggle to prepare us for it. Three elements of our struggle to prepare us for it. So uh, read with me in Ephesians chapter 6. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. And we will read verses 10 to 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incompatible. Back in uh, about 2014, 2015, kind of in that area, there was a, uh, a, a kind of a big debate about how we should identify ISIS, uh, and the debate centered around right whether we should call it Islamic extremism. Or simply just an extremist ideology. Uh, many people didn't want to identify ISIS with Islam, so as not to offend the Islamic community. Uh, and the the point about this debate was important, was it, because it would help us to understand how to fight an enemy, understand who an enemy is, and why an enemy fights in order to fight that enemy. And and I I think many people were right. Muslims were not the enemy. Muslims were not the enemy. In fact, many Muslims live in the U.S. with no intent of overturning Western democracy at all. But it was also true that ISIS was very much a religious organization. ISIS was very much Islamic, driven by Islamic ideologies. And so that's the point, though. For some people, Muslims... All Muslims are the enemy, and others, Islam, had nothing to do with ISIS. And so that debate betrayed how easy it is to get our enemies mixed up. What that debate showed us as Americans is we get our enemies mixed up. We, as people, humans, not just Americans, as human beings, we get all of our enemies mixed up. And so the first important element element is knowing the enemy of our struggle. Knowing the enemy of our struggle. Paul begins this whole exhortation, this whole section with an exhortation. He says, finally, the end of the epistle, the climax of the epistle, everything building up to this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Strong, strength, might. Throughout the book of Ephesians, God's power is actually figured prominently in, in several places. So in chapter 1, Paul lists our spiritual blessedness in Christ, and Paul prays that we would know the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. In chapter 2, Paul says that God used that same power when He raised us up with Him And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, Again, in Paul, in chapter three, Paul prays that we might be strengthened with power through His Spirit that we may have strength to comprehend the love of Christ. So, so it is God's strength, His power, that is the source of our salvation and the source of our obedience. God's strength is the source of our salvation and the source of our strength. It's an inexhaustible source that has no limits to what it can accomplish. And the thing about God's strength is that it is fully available to us. There's no portion of His strength that He withholds from us. It, we have full access to the power of an infinite, almighty, and wise God. So the whole point is that God is as abundant with his power as he is abundant with his grace. This point is important because believers don't empower themselves. Believers don't empower themselves. Your strength comes from an external source. You are not strong. But God is strong. Your source of strength comes from somewhere else, from someone else. And that means, what that means is you are totally dependent. It does not feel good to be dependent. That's what's ironic about this. When you're dependent, you don't feel strong. You feel dependent. But it's in our weakest posture that the power of Christ rests upon us. It's when we're weakest, when we're the most dependent, when we're the most helpless, that Christ's power fully rests on us. And we are totally dependent on this external source of power because we have an external, powerful enemy. Paul says, Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul doesn't just pull these dark powers out of thin air either. So in chapter 2, God rescues us, right? We were once children of disobedience who follow the prince of the power of the air, right? And so that's chapter 2. And in chapter 3, Paul talks about how Christ he, the reason he builds up his church is to shame the powers and the authorities. So what this means is that there are three main forces that work against the believer. There's three main forces. Our own flesh. So, not other people's flesh, our own flesh. The world and Satan. The flesh, the world, and Satan. And so there are two extremes that we have to avoid here. One is blaming Satan for everything. And the other is not acknowledging satanic work at all. James says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Uh, First, John identifies three enemies of the Christian, and none of them is the devil. But the sin lurking in each person is, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. So the point is not to try and find Satan behind every action or temptation or setback. But it is to recognize that the ultimate opposition we face to the gospel and to living righteously springs from evil supernatural powers that are under the sway of Satan. When I I feel depressed, it's... Probably just my flesh being depressed. Satan could be behind it, but ultimately, depression is not my enemy. Satan is my enemy. What all this means is that we can't confuse the enemy. We can't confuse our enemies or get them mixed up. The enemy is not other people for the Christian Our struggle is not against other human beings. We're not wrestling with other human beings. We're wrestling against Satan. I've heard a lot of people talk about how they're going to start a civil war after this election. And they might fight in that battle, but they're not participating in this one we simply cannot confuse people under the sway of Satan and Satan himself. We can't confuse people who are under the sway of the enemy and the actual enemy. That's the point I'm trying to make. And people who often think that others are just tools of Satan forget how easily they too might be under his control. Right? You know what? Paul says in Second Corinthians that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Klein Snodgrass says of this that evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains an entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. The the fruit looked good to Eve. If it was rotten with worms, she wouldn't have eaten it, but it looked good. So what all of this means is that the Christian must be on high alert. High alert. Satan is at work, and he is at work against you. Satan would love it. He would love it if you were so focused on a cultural or social or political battle that you weren't aware of the ways he's making you stumble. So Paul says, therefore, verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. It seems like in every scary movie, I don't watch a lot of scary movies, but in every one that I've seen, and every one that I've heard about, there's a moment when the people in the movie think that the killer is dead. He's finished. And then they let their guard down and it's not a moment later that he comes bursting through the wall with his chainsaw and he kills all of them. Don't ever be lulled into a sense of false security. Don't ever be lulled to sleep because because we must not underestimate our enemy and we must not confuse our enemy. Paul's point in knowing our enemy is that we might stand firm against our enemy. Know your enemy so that in the evil day you can stand firm. So how do we stand firm? How do we, what does it say, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might? How do we do this? By putting on God's armor. So the second element is equipping the outfit of our struggle. Equipping the outfit of our struggle. Paul gives the exhortation to, to stand. Again, he says, verse 14, stand therefore. So you get the idea as you read this that standing is a really important concept here. When we stand by equipping an outfit, equipping an outfit, putting on armor, and, and Paul lists several different pieces of armor here. We're going to go through each of them, but Paul draws this imagery from Isaiah. This imagery just doesn't come from thin air. He draws it from Isaiah. And in Isaiah, God, the mighty warrior, puts on his armor to defeat his enemies. And so Paul, by drawing on that imagery and applying it to believers now, shows that God has won the victory. He has won the victory and shares his armor with believers. What's... What Christ has done, He makes available to us. So it's important to realize, again, that we are in the already, not yet. God has already defeated Satan. Satan is a defeated enemy, yet we still have to put on God's armor and continue to fight. Already, not yet. And that's good news because we are struggling against an enemy that we are well equipped in, equipped in Christ to defeat. Might seem scary that we still have battle to do, but it's good news because he's a defeated enemy and we have everything we already need to fight. It's already ours. We just have to wear it. Heard a guy preach a sermon and he said it's like girls I and mean, guys don't do this, so I just say I say girls, girls going outfit shopping to get together, and and one starts out of the dressing room and is wearing this outfit, and the other girl, girl, you just wear it. You know, wear it with confidence. Girl, I don't girls don't say that, it sounded weird, but you know what I'm saying. Like, yeah, just wear it. Fit into it. It's yours. Rock it, girl. I'm not a girl for obvious reasons. Uh so, so Paul said sorry, weird jokes one after another. Um so Paul says, uh as the first piece of armor, verse 14, stand therefore having Fasten the belt of truth. Having fastened the belt of truth around your waist, so you think about your belt. It holds your outfit together, right? Your belt holds your outfit together, so or maybe we hope it does, right? Uh, but the idea is that you're not charging into battle holding your pants up, right? It's the belt of truth, the truth of God's revealed will in His Word. So. This, this, especially in the gospel. So the foundational piece of armor is foundational truth. And you can't put the rest of your armor on if you get this part wrong. If you get the truth wrong, the foundational truths of what God has revealed. Secondly, Paul says, uh, having put on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And I think it's really important that Paul puts truth and, and, and righteousness back to back. Because righteousness here means righteous living. right? It's not necessarily referring to our righteousness in Christ, although right? it's because we're righteous in Christ that we now live righteously. Right? So we don't want to mix that up. But the righteousness here refers to righteous living. And so Paul mentioned earlier in in chapter 5, what does he say? Be imitators of God. And that means living righteously. And so there's no such thing as correct belief with incorrect living. There's no such thing as believing all the right things but not living rightly. I think one of the great dangers of the church that we face throughout time, but especially today, is that we get all of our beliefs and our doctrine correct, but forget what it means to live righteously and justly. Micah 6.8 says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So so truth and right and good doctrine must be inseparably coupled with righteousness and good deeds. Jesus said the wise man is the one who hears these words of mine and believes them? No, not just believes, but practices them. Puts them into practice. Thirdly, Paul says in verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. About to admit a very unmanly thing, but Clay was witness, and John was witness, had a very unmanly weekend, fly fishing with them. Uh, I'll, you can ask me about that later, but anyway, I probably have too many shoes for a guy. I have my dress shoes, I have my everyday boots, I have my work boots, rain boots, Running shoes. If I keep going, I'm just going to embarrass myself. But the point is, right, we have different shoes for different purposes. I used to work uh, at Dillard selling ladies' comfort shoes. And we would get some really impossible requests. And and, and so uh, one day, I, I seriously had this lady who wanted a good pair of comfortable shoes that would stay on her feet securely because, because, in, she, in case she needed to jump out of a plane that had been hijacked by terrorists, Velcro would do just fine, I think. So, so what Paul has in mind here, though, is that every believer is outfitted with shoes, with these shoes, for all circumstances. The idea is that that Paul. There is that every believer has these shoes that, that are purpose for every outfit, right? They're not physical shoes. But what he is saying is there isn't to be a moment where we aren't wearing our gospel shoes. Whether we're walking in the mall or jumping out of an airplane because of terrorists, we'll be ready with the gospel. And what's ironic about this is, is he says, right, it's not just uh, the uh, shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. He doesn't just say gospel, he says gospel of peace. So it's ironic because we're in the midst of this spiritual warfare, but we're still heralds of peace. We bring tidings of peace even as we fight a war. We are to announce the gospel of peace at all times, in all places, in the midst of raging spiritual warfare. So, Belt, truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes, gospel readiness. Uh, Verse 16, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We are attacked moment by moment. And the only way we can resist Satan's relentless attacks and his constant lies is to appropriate by faith over and over and over again all that God is for us in Christ. The only way we can withstand the attacks, relentless attacks and lies is to appropriate by faith every day, moment by moment, everything that God is for us in Christ. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That's a lifetime. Just as the battle is never ceasing, so is this laying hold of by faith. Fifthly, Paul says, Take verse seventeen verse seventeen, take the helmet of salvation. The head is arguably, in my mind, the most vulnerable piece part of your body during battle. It's the most vulnerable part. And and like the shield of faith, putting on the helmet of Christ is appropriating more and more our status in Christ. I've said it before, we don't move beyond the gospel. We go deeper into the gospel. We go deeper into who we already are in Christ. And so for a while, in my 20s, I severely doubted my salvation. And I was trying to look more and more and more at the genuineness of my repentance. I was trying to look for feelings of assurance, but what God did was He didn't increase my confidence in my sense of assurance. He increased my confidence in Christ. So putting on the helmet of salvation is becoming more and more confidence in the greatness of Christ. Finally, Verse 17, Paul says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only weapon we have as Christians is not a physical weapon. It's a spiritual weapon. We wage war within culture against the forces of darkness by wielding correctly the Word of God. As one commentator noted correctly, this is not some arbitrary word addressed to Satan. Rather, it is the faithful speaking forth of the gospel in the realm of darkness so that men and women held by Satan might hear this liberating and life-giving word and be freed from his grasp. So we stand by equipping the outfit of our struggle. It's ours. This is already ours. It's already yours if you are in Christ. You just have to fit into it. Every day. So, knowing the enemy of our struggle, equipping the outfit of our struggle, and the last element is focusing on the aim of our struggle. In the ESV uh they translate Paul in verse eighteen as, as, as saying praying at all times in the spirit, so it's kind of like this continuing thought, but in actuality this is a whole separate sentence. So so pray, put so pray at all times in the spirit. So actually this pray at all times in the spirit is parallel with put on the armor of God. So the way we stand is by putting on the armor of God and by praying. We have a map of where we are and where we need to go. We have a map, but we need a megaphone too. Paul tells us exactly how to pray and what to pray for. Praying at all times in the Spirit, verse 18, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Prayer is not a tack-on to the Christian life. Prayer is not the side salad to the steak of, of Christian life. Prayer is the Christian's life breath. Why? Because the Christian life is one of constant dependence. Prayer is how a Christian depends on God. And if, if the Christian life is entirely one of dependence, then the Christian life is one of entirely praying. So, if you're not praying, then you're not depending. And what I'm, I don't mean that if you're not muttering prayer at all times, you're not Depending, it just means that your life must be must be marked with prayer. I, I love the outdoors. I love I love camping. I love backpacking. I do still love fishing. Um, it's great. Uh, but um, one thing I try to do when I go camping is live by the principle called "leave no trace." Right. So you want to go in and 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 do everything you can to leave it as if nobody was ever there. You want the forest to look exactly how you found it. Prayer should not be like that. Prayer should be apparent, obvious, and consistent. It should leave a mark on your life. Paul Miller, uh, who wrote my favorite book on prayer called A, A Praying Life, he wrote that a needy heart is a praying heart. Dependency is the heartbeat of prayer. We're to pray for a purpose. Paul says it in verse 19. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. I'll give you a little insight as to this fishing escapade I went on with Clay and John on Friday. Uh, nothing is more humbling than fly fishing as a beginner. And I say that because Clay may have spent more time untangling the knots that I made than actually fishing. And, and he left with more fish than me and John combined. So, the thing about fly fishing though is that you can't fly fish correctly. You can't get the fish if you're constantly thinking about all the mechanics. Cork up, roll cast, don't you know, making the motion. You can't focus on getting it right because you're going to get it wrong. You you learn the mechanics so that you can keep your aim focused, so that you don't have to think about the mechanics, and you get less knots. Church, our aim is to win people to the gospel. Above and beyond everything else we might have purpose for in life, everything else we might want in life, our Greatest and highest aim is to win people to the gospel. And so everything we do has to be to preserve our moral witness and our integrity so that people come to Christ. We stand firm so that people come to Christ. We pray so that people come to Christ. If we let our focus be on a million other factors that assault us, we end up entangling ourselves and missing our focus. That's why as we march into battle within our hearts and our homes and our workplaces and our culture, our focus must remain the same on proclaiming the gospel, on proclaiming a living Jesus, a living Savior for lost sinners. Always our focus. Always our aim. That's what it means to focus on the aim of our struggle. The way to defeat the enemy. We see a lot of forces of darkness working in our culture. The way to defeat those forces of darkness is to strive to save those who are under His sway. Paul ends his letter by referencing, or he sends... um, Tychicus, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, so don't go home with that. So that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Paul practices what he preaches by being preeminently concerned about how they are doing in their warfare. Are you concerned with one another? are you concerned with how each other is doing in this spiritual battle because often not to sometimes often we aren't doing great we struggle with doubts we struggle with faith we struggle to pray we struggle to read the word we struggle to be in the word we struggle to obey the word we struggle with sin Are you concerned with how one another is doing in this spiritual battle? And conversely, on the other side, one of the greatest gifts, if not the greatest earthly gift that God can give us, is other people who constantly point us to Christ. How many people in my life pointed me to Christ in a thousand different ways? is an inexpressibly infinite gift. To have people who pray for you and remind you of Jesus. Who remind you of who you are in Christ. Who remind you that your struggle with sin isn't the last word. Christ on the cross is the last word. Who aren't afraid to tell you what you don't want to hear, who aren't afraid to rebuke you because they're concerned with your soul and your love for Jesus. So we pray for these kinds of friends. Oh, ask God for these kinds of friends and and strive to be the kind of person who wants to point other people, especially other believers, to Christ. Paul ends this letter the same way that he began. Ephesians chapter 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful and in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Christian, your life is bookended with grace and peace from God the Father. Grace, grace to you in your struggle, Christian. Grace to you in your sin. Peace. Peace to you. Christian, there is peace between us. Between you and God because of what Christ has accomplished. And, and 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 Paul adds something interesting here in verse 24 that we haven't seen yet in Ephesians. He says, "Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible." Do you love Christ? Do you love him? Have you turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus? Because that's what we want. We want to love Jesus. Let us love Christ. Let us love Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, if there is anything that we have learned in Ephesians is that we have been equipped with everything that we need. You have given us every possible resource, all measure of grace, every ounce of Your strength to walk faithfully to You. You have blessed us in heavenly realms with abundant blessings in Christ. You have rescued us from the dominion of darkness as children of wrath and made us and to your adopted sons in Christ because of your mercy. You have made a new people your church so that in the powers of darkness might be put to shame by you saving people to your church. Lord, you have given us, each other, the church to strive for unity. You've given us a new nature, God, so that we won't live by our old nature. You've given us your spirit to guide us. You've given us elders and, and pastors and 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 teachers and encouragers, God, and every kind of spiritual gift. You've given us families and husbands and wives and children and moms and dads. God, You've given us everything we need to stand firm in this spiritual battle. God, it is not a spiritual battle You want us to lose. It is a spiritual battle that You have won and that You desire us to win. God, You want us to stand firm. You want us to plant our feet firmly in Christ. So, Father, by Your grace, may our roots go deeper and deeper and deeper into who You are and all that You have done for us in Christ. Thank You, God, that there is nothing we have done to make You love us less and nothing we can do to make You love us more because You already love us perfectly in Christ. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen.